0: I've been thinking about this lately This is what I suppose Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org this this I realize So I'm on my knees for understanding The more the world I see, the more I see Leave I in, I'm no diamond ring i got a lot to learn, so I'm listening what a blessing it is to be here. It's the last Sunday before Christmas. Yep, Christmas next Saturday. We've got, what, five shopping days left? Five shopping days left till Christmas? Like anyone really cares, right? It's just madness, stress. And so um, with this being our last Sunday before Christmas, let's give some consideration. It was beautiful to see the children this morning sharing... And it just reminded me of the verse in scripture where it says that from the mouths of babes, God has perfected praise. He has ordained praise. And um, it, I, heard, I heard a lyric from a, a friend of mine up in um, Manchester. And it's, he said, you know, the gospel's so simple, but it takes man to compl- complicate it. And just in the presentation of the children, it was like, well, you know what? Is there any more need for a message? I mean, they've said it all. They've communicated it all so simply and yet so clearly. And so we thank the Lord for that and for his work in their lives. And we thank the Lord for the children's church, the the ministry team that minister to them and have been serving faithfully throughout the year, um, led by Neil and Camille. And I think we should give them a, a, a big encouragement this morning. Amen. Sowing the the word of God in their young hearts and lives. So let's pray and turn our attentions to the message in hand. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing goodness toward us. And um, in this festive season, Lord, I pray that you would Help us to appreciate fully all that you are, all that you have done for us, Lord. Help us to appreciate the very desire of your heart, Lord. So speak to us today and encourage our hearts toward you, we pray. Use me, Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that you take my stammering lips and communicate life by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the the message of Christmas is truly simple. And it's unfortunate that it has become so complicated. And it's become so clouded and become so confused in many ways. When we look at Modern media, we see that there are all kinds of messages being communicated about Christmas. Uh, I want to show you a, a couple of clips, and I'm not going to sh- show it to you with any sound. Some of you may be familiar with the clips, but I want you to tell me what message you think the clip is communicating about Christmas. See that? What is that communicating about Christmas? <laughs> say it loud, say it loud. Yeah. Presents, yeah. Excess, yeah. Money. excess, money, what else? Consumerism. Consumerism, what else? Someone say cars. <laughs> oh, fun, fun, okay. Shop at Littlewoods. <laughs> What else is it communicating? Is there anything else that you get from that? It's all about what you get. Think about the subjects of the clip. Who who are the people in the clip? There were girls, there were children. And so we see that, I mean, would you agree that that is a common image portrayed of Christmas? Yeah? Okay, what about this one? You're not feeling hungry, like, oh gosh, let's, <laughs> let's hurry up and get out of here. What does that communicate to you about Christmas? Food. Fast food. All right. So, so we've had presents, we've had children, we've had fun, we've had food. Yeah? <laughs> All right. All right. Last one, what does this communicate to you about Christmas? (laughs) Now this one, I should have played with sound because you needed to hear the punchline. Have any of you seen the advertisement already? Some of you have seen it, okay, okay. For those of you, most of you who haven't seen it, The punchline at the end of the commercial is, give your cat a wonderful Christmas. (laughs) Now, any cat cat lovers in the building? Uh, One or two, one or two. I'm not hating on cats, yeah? I'm not hating, I I don't love cats, I I just be straightforward. But I'm not hating on cats, or dogs, or any other pets for that matter. But what does that communicate about Christmas? It's for cats too. (laughs) Christmas is for cats too. Does it communicate anything else to you about Christmas? Snow, warmth, cozy, cuddly, You know what it communicates to me? Confusion. (laughs) Now, I can't even remember where I was when I saw that commercial, but the punchline caught my ear and I was like, oh my days. Hold on. Are these people serious? Give your cat a wonderful Christmas. Like the cat really knows or cares. Now, we see these messages in the media and I would suggest by reason of the fact that we're all here, we're not impressed by those messages. Furthermore, generally we're, we're pretty turned off by those messages. Maybe even disgusted. We, we resist consumerism and we, we resist the materialistic um, the tendency that Christmas wants to draw out of us. Although we do engage in it to some degree. And yet, this is the message of our culture. Now, there are those people that hate on Christmas. They, Furthermore, there are those Christians that hate on Christmas. Because You have to overstand Christmas is a pagan festival. You overstand me. (laughs) And you know that very often it's those people who, you know what, they don't like Christmas because it's pagan. And all right, fair enough. Let's just break it down for a second. Christmas is based on a pagan festival. Historically true. Centuries before Jesus came, in the month of December, pagans were celebrating a winter festival. And it was such that they were celebrating the sun god in the, in, in, the, in the aim to hasten its return so that they could have a fruitful spring. And so they would have evergreen trees and they would give presents and make merry And they would have mistletoe under which they were to embrace their enemies. And so all of these facets were even in existence before Jesus came. When the Romans came on the scene, they called it Saturnalia. So those militant, quote unquote, individuals that we might see as being radical. And alternative and unorthodox that would say it's a pagan festival, all right." Now, the thing that gets me is that often those same people that would say, "Oh Christians are not supposed to engage in Christia- Christmas, and we're not supposed to um, involve ourselves in those pagan practices. They're the same people that don't go to church. they don't read the Bible. They, they will sit down and smoke weed and say that it's from the earth, it's natural, and God's blessed it. And you have to overstand them. So, my own personal journey has been one of um, a roller coaster in terms of, you know, how do we as Christians... View Christmas in light of the world's excesses and confused understanding. Are we even the very basis of the of the season, quote unquote, is pagan? So, are we supposed to even engage it? Are we supposed to have anything to do with it? Well, I read an article, a blog this week, which I'd recommend to you on the resurgence. It's a blog by Mark Driscoll, and it's about culture. And he says three things. He says, look, you know what? When it comes to culture, we can receive it, we can reject it, or we can redeem it. We can receive it, we can reject it, or we can redeem it. And the very essence of the Christmas story, as we understand it from Scripture communicates this fact that we can receive, reject or redeem and so it's a pagan festival should we receive it? well evidently we don't receive those aspects of it that are contrary to scripture and do not glorify God back in the 17th century, their aim was to take the festival and redeem it and take those aspects of it that can be used in order to glorify God. So the the tree, evergreen Christmas tree, became a symbol of everlasting life. It's green all year round. And the exchanging of gifts was uh, a symbolic symbol action that was expressed in response to the gift that God has given of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we see throughout the very many aspects of Christmas as it has been celebrated traditionally, which in some ways I think we probably suggest is a thing of the past, right? In terms of a traditional Christmas. Especially here in England, I think maybe in the States, it's quite different. They still have a very entrenched culture um, there. But in, in England, especially in cosmopolitan London, you have so many different views and approaches. But the traditional Christmas, so much of it was redeemed by 17th century Christians with a view to turn people's attention away from the false gods and turn their attention on to the true God. In Colossians 3, it says that all that we do, we're to do to the glory of the Lord. In Colossians, it also says that we're not not to let anyone sit in judgment of us with regards to feast days and festivals and new moons. As a people, the Jews had a history of festivals and corporate national celebrations and they were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now when they were fulfilled, they had a dilemma. What do we do? Do we keep the festivals like good Jews? Or do we abandon them because we have liberty in Christ Jesus and they're fulfilled in him? They don't mean anything anymore. well that's what some said and there was tension and there was conflict between those that said no yes, yes Jesus is the Messiah and yet we must still keep the festivals to maintain the symbolic expression of what he has done for us but then there were others that were like no I'm not feeling that Jesus has set me free and you know what, sometimes it's hard work trying to keep those festivals because they're, they're deep and very ritualistic and they're very involved. But Paul said, let no one sit in judgment of you on those things. Why? What does that mean? It means that, you know what, all things are lawful but not all things are profitable. You may choose to keep the festival with a genuine intent and a pure understanding of what it's about. Do so to the glory of the Lord. And no one's supposed to sit in judgment of that person. You may choose not to keep the festival because you see it fulfilled in Christ. Well, do so freely to the glory of God and let no one sit in judgment of that person. And so. Even as we consider Christmas, and you consider, where do, where, do, where do I stand on Christmas? The same message applies. The same thing applies. Well, you are free to uphold the festival to the glory of God in that you are seeking to redeem those aspects of it that can be used and, and pointed to the glory of God. But then you may choose not to. Either way, you're you're not a better or a worse Christian. Now, as people go through their preparations for Christmas, one thing is pretty consistent, and we saw it in the first clip. It does involve the sharing of gifts. And even for most of us as Christians, you know, hopefully we we don't take the extravagant route and feel like, okay, you know, we've got to buy out Hamleys, buy out Selfridges, and buy out Harrods. But very often, we enter into the season. And even if it's just for those who are our nearest and dearest, We give some consideration to expressing our heart and our love for them in a response to God's love toward us in wanting to share gifts with them. But I wonder have you ever asked the question, what does God want for Christmas? What does God want for Christmas? Christmas this year, has that been at the forefront of your mind? In all your desire to give, and I won't even talk about the desire to get. But in all your desire to give, have you considered what God wants for Christmas? Because the answer to that question is completely and entirely tied up in the story of Christmas and the point of Christmas, the purpose of Christmas. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And what we're going to do, we're going to consider the simplicity of God's working in coming to earth as a man. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying behold The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And she called his name Jesus. This is Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. Matthew's account is known for being to the point and very quicksave or very littles. No frills attached. How many of you remember Quicksave? It's taking it back in the, yeah. the The original Liddles, the original Audi. They set the pace. No thrills attached. That was one of their slogans. No thrills packaging. And we see this in Matthew's account. And even the very nature of Matthew's account itself would suggest that, you know what? This is truly inspired by God. Because you would think if a man sat down to write the account of Christ's birth, he would hype it up. I mean, he's sitting down in hindsight, realizing who Jesus is. And so he's now going to write about the coming of the Messiah, the the, the great king of kings and lord of lords. So he's going to hype it up. But no, a very straightforward account. few things to clear up because evidently there's confusion around the christmas story in the world and even to some extent in the church some have looked at this and looked at these first few verses and said that there's contradiction there this was clearly not inspired by god so verse 18 the birth of jesus christ was as follows After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are those even who profess Christ would say, you know, it wasn't a virgin birth, it wasn't by the Holy Spirit. And they really don't have an argument or a leg to stand on. Because fundamentally, if... God is God, he can do what he wants. And so it's nothing for him, the one who made us to cause a woman to give birth to a child by his power. I mean, that's just got to come with any kind of common sense view of God, of there being a God. So we're not even going to camp on that right now. This is where they say the contradiction is. Say, then Joseph, her husband. But hold on a minute. Isn't there a problem there? Can you see a problem there? Between verse 19 and verse 18. What does it say in verse 18 that would contradict that statement? Joseph, her husband. Betrothed. So how can it be that they were betrothed? And it even emphasizes before they came together. In the very next verse, say that Joseph was her husband. You see, Bible is written by man; it's full of contradictions. Well, that is based on a, an ignorant and an ill-informed understanding of the culture and marital relations, because betrothal was legally binding. And most of you who have been around here for any length of time will have heard that. Betrothal is legally binding. It's not like our idea of engagement. Now, I hear of people getting engaged six, seven, eight times. Christians. Lord have his mercy. But betrothal in those days, you couldn't, you couldn't approach a relationship in that way you couldn't approach betrothal in that way because betrothal was legally binding and so when a man and a woman gave themselves to one another to be betrothed in the eyes of jewish law they were as good as married in, in, in our law, we'd call it a, a de jure relationship where it was legally ratified and recognized. But they weren't married yet. And so during that period, they were not allowed to consummate the relationship and have relations, sexual relations. But they were committed to follow through on that which they had purposed. So, in a legal sense, Joseph was already seen as her husband. It was just a matter of time before it was completed or fulfilled. And so there was no contradiction there. Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanted to make her a public example. Now, At this point, we understand that Mary becoming pregnant before they were married would have been something that had cast shame upon her and maybe even upon him, but more so upon her. The stigma of being an adulteress. The stigma of being one who has not only laid with a man before marriage and very likely the view would have been not her betrothed man but she's also going to have a child as a result of that. And so Joseph knowing this and knowing the shame and knowing the stigma sought to divorce her to nullify their legal relationship in order to minimize it wouldn't have eliminated but minimize the shame. But an angel appeared to him spoke to him and told him to Go through it. This is of the Lord. She will bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets saying. Behold. Behold the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel God with us. Now right here, this is the heart of the account. This is the essence of the account. This is the main point of the account. That God was going to step into time and space and become a man in order to save his people from their sins. When we consider this, it gives us the clear meaning and purpose of Christmas. The clear meaning and purpose of Christmas. And it's simply this. God wants you. God wants you. Now, it's a very specific statement. And it's something that you should take a minute to meditate on and think about what that means. Think about who you are. Think about your life. Think about the way you live. Think about the things you like, the things you don't, the things you do. Places you go, the people you associate with. Think about your relationship with the Lord or lack of it, as the case may be. And think about the fact that God wants you. When you think about that, how does that make you feel? when you think about that what does that mean to you? God wants you now there's a statement in here which is problematic You see, it communicates the fact that God wants you, but it's not clear about who the you are. And I use you in a collective sense. Verse 21. For he will save who? Who? He will save his people. Now, when we look at this statement, it is a bit of a problem. And a lot of the commentators will state that, you know what, this is a bit of a problem. Who are the his people that it is speaking about? Is it speaking about all people? Because as my relatives would say, my cousins and family We're all all God's people. We're all God-blessed people. I'm a God-blessed man. We all come from God. Is that who it's speaking about? Is it talking about everyone? Well, it can't be. Because although we are all created in God's image, We see the conclusion of the statement. Save his people from their sins. Identifying the fact that actually there is a problem. There is something that separates all people from God. So yes, God is our creator. And we are made in his image. But Jesus said, you know what? Furthermore the Jews, the Pharisees who were contending with him in John 8, he said that their father was the devil. Ephesians 2 tells us that Satan is the god of this world. And he has his sway and dominion over all who are in the world who are not gods. So although... God may be our creator. He's not everyone's father in a relational sense. So it's not talking about all people, but is it talking about the Jews? Well, yes and no. Jesus himself said, I've come to the house of Israel. When the Syrophoenician woman came to him looking for healing for her child. She said, that, He said, I can't take from the, the, the food from the table and give to the dogs. She was a Gentile, she wasn't a Jew. And yet she said, Well, you can give some crumbs. And he said, Whoa, What faith? See, she understood the dynamics that she wasn't recognized and identified amongst the Jews who historically were the chosen people of God. And yet we see that the Jews, although they were once chosen, could not be considered in the complete sense to be the his people that this verse is speaking of. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have needed to have come. They would have just continued with the sacrificial system. And so we see that it's not speaking of everyone. It's not speaking just of the Jews. But actually it speaks of all who will believe and put their faith in Christ. Because that is what Qualifies us and identifies us as His people. That is what causes the recognition of us being His people to become a reality. That we repent and put our faith in Christ, as we heard the children say. And those who do that will be saved from their sins. Now, we could get into deep conversations right now about predestination and election, but we won't. <laughs> but undoubtedly, we know that Ephesians 1 does tell us that God has elected some before the foundations of the world. Romans 8 talks about predestined, the fact that those who are his are predestined And that's something that we're supposed to understand and accept as an after-the-event perspective. See, so often we walk around, and those who kind of have that view and that understanding, trying to be like a sniper. Mmm, that one's chosen, that one isn't. When they both look the same. Both living in sin. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the hidden things are the Lord's, but that which is revealed is for us. And the only thing that reveals to ourselves and to anyone else that we are truly his is that we put our faith in Christ Jesus and in him alone. Not in ourselves, not in our goodness, not in our own works, not in, no, but we put our faith in Christ. And so that call goes out and that invitation goes to all people. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus came to fulfill the mission impossible. One of the things I want to clarify is that God wants you. But God doesn't need you. Some of us live like God needs us. Some, and I'm talking about Christians. Let alone people in the world. You know those, you see those guys that walk around like they're God's gift. Everything they touch turns to gold. Drive a nice car, got the big house, the trophy girlfriend. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, yeah, if i got time for God, I'll give him a bit of my time. And if I ain't, well, then he'll have to wait then, won't he? That kind of mentality. But I'm not even talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. So often we can give ourselves to the things of God like God can't do without us. So often we can give ourselves to to ministry or to serving God and beat ourselves up so much when we're not doing enough. We can find ourselves in a place actually mistakenly thinking that God needs us. But God doesn't need us or he wouldn't be God. One of the fundamental attributes of God is that he's self-existent. He needs nothing, not even air, not even food, not even water, without which we all die. So God doesn't need anyone. And yet we see that God does want you. God wants you. But not because you're fly. Not because you're dapper. Not because you're so fetch, babe. (laughs) Not because you're smart. Not because you're intelligent. Not because you're kind. Not because you're articulate. Not because you're hard working. God wants you, but sorry to have to kill your pride and, and smash your ego. It's not because of anything in you. It's not even because he knows what use he can make of you in his kingdom. Ah, this one's got such great qualities. I'm going to be able to do a great work with them. Look at Moses, brought up in the household of Pharaoh. Ate the best food, educated by the most intelligent. I mean, Egyptians built pyramids and sphinxes and all these wonders of the world that they're still trying to work out how they've done it. Without modern machinery. And Moses grew up in the highest of the highest of the courts of Egypt. And yet, what happened to him when he was drawn out of Egypt by God? What happened to him? In the wilderness. Being stripped and being broken. To the point where God sent him to speak to Pharaoh and he said, I can't talk. I'm a man of stammering lift, lips. Now, do you think that in the courts of Egypt, as Moses was growing up, they didn't have speech therapists? You think that this was a a speech impediment that he had had all of his life? Moses was just stripped down to, of everything that he had, just stripped down to the bare essentials. Just him. Him and the hand of God. And so God's not looking at any of us and saying, ah, I'm going to send my son to die for you because I'm gonna, I can see how I'm going to use those great qualities in your life for my glory. God doesn't want anything that we've got. I wonder if any of you can um, tell me what this place is. I'll give you a clue. It's, it's pretty local. It's fairly local, at least to hear about. No? Blackheath. Who? Blackheath. Yeah, I know you guys have been house hunting around that area. There's <laughs> a lot of money around there, right? Blackheath. Now, you know, Blackheath has a legend about it. You notice how the heath is very plain trees are only kind of on the outskirts or uh, around those building areas there but the the heath itself is very plain the grass is lush great place to go for a picnic fireworks maybe but I don't know if you know the legend of Blackheath that says Blackheath got its name from the fact that it was a, a, a huge burial pit during the time of the bubonic plague. They called it the Black Death. They say that the Black Death wiped out almost 50%. Some historians say even up to 60% of the English population in the 14th to the 16th century, 14th to the 17th century. People were dropping like flies, literally, because of the flies and the fleas. And so, hence, Blackheath being on the surface very nice, but nothing really able to grow there, the legend says. So you see this kind of surface appearance of life. But beneath the surface is death. This is what the legend says. And in many ways, it's a picture of our lives. It's a picture of our lives apart from Christ. On the surface, people look all right. We see them on the tubes, we see them on the trains, we see them at work, we see them at college, we see them on the buses. People kind of get on with life and seem like everything just seems in order, fine. And yet, beneath the surface, the very shallow top layer, Jesus said it's dead men's bones. We're dead in sin, apart from Christ. Now you might be thinking twice about going to Blackie for a picnic. This wide open space here in inner London, you'd think that people would be fighting to try and protect that land. It has been said that developers don't want to even think about it. Such is the nature of our life. with the rancid stench of sin that resides within us? What in that would motivate God to want us? Now, just to let you know that in all of my research, the legend proves still to be a legend because I wasn't able to find any evidence that that was actually true about Blackheath before you start cancelling all of your plans for the spring or you, you don't jog around Blackheath anymore. I don't know if that's true or not, let the record state. But it's definitely true of our hearts and it's definitely true of our lives. And Such was the case that God said, okay, for my own reasons and my own purposes, I want you. Such that we will actually never understand. And God didn't just say come, but he came to get you. Do any of you remember I'm um, ever having an experience of being lost as a child? I remember one time I was in a department store. I don't know. It could have been Morley's in Brixton or it could have been some other department store. I can't remember. I just remember that when I was very little, the store was very big. And you know, you can't see over the, over the rails, you can't see over the, the racks. And you're just a little toddler walking around in there. If you've never had that experience, I'm sure you've been in a supermarket and seen a child crying, Mommy, Mommy. Well, that was me. I was little and I was lost. And as much as I cried, Granny, there was no finding Granny. Until Granny came to find me. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. We were so lost that we couldn't find God. And so God came to find us. And this is a great mystery God became a man. I remember thinking about that, and um, I, I remember being a hip hop head from back in the day. There was a lyric, I think it was by Eric Sermon, brother from EPMD, and he said, I'm half man, half amazing. And I was like, oh man, what a lyric. And I thought, yeah, that's like Jesus. Yeah, we should, we should talk about Jesus like that. Half man, half amazing. Because he was God in the flesh. Well, that was my first venture into false doctrine. Jesus wasn't half man and half amazing. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And his humanity did not affect his divinity. It did not dilute. It did not um, tarnish. It didn't take away from his divine nature. In fact, throughout the church history, much debate has been had over this, and they had two what they call councils to try and establish and clearly communicate. Listen, some of you were saying that this guy Jesus had split personality, he was some schizophrenic on un- com- community release from Maudsley. But no, he was a hundred percent man. 100 percent God and yet one person. And Paul said it like this, First Timothy 3:16: "Great is the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery that God was manifest in the flesh. God became a man. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh, it says in Philippians 2. Although he was without sin, hence the virgin birth. You see, the virgin birth is an important doctrine because the virgin birth tells us that the line of Adam was interrupted And because the line of Adam was interrupted, Jesus was not an inheritor of Adam's sin and was therefore qualified to save us from our sins. And it's a mystery. The term they used was hypostatic union. I mean, what does that mean? The thing is as mysterious as the term suggests. 100% God and 100% man. Hypostatic union. And you see. From Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 we have what's called the the, Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel. The first proclamation of the gospel. And it says that. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent, will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent will bruise his heel. And in that veiled statement, we see a prediction of Christ coming. That he would come and crush Satan, his head, his authority, his, uh, his power, crush it. Jesus said, I have come to destroy the works of the devil. And that is what he done. And yet the devil afflicted a bruise. You see, death for Jesus was nothing less, nothing more than a bruise. You get a bruise and with time it heals, right? Back to normal. And that's all the devil could do to Jesus. Even in killing him, because we know the end of the story. He rose on the third day. Praise be to God. And so the Jews had the expectation of the coming Messiah. And that expectation filtered through to other cultures. How many of you saw the film Clash of the Titans? Disappointed, right? Maybe not. Big film, feeling it. Pastor Roberts was feeling the big film, you know, Clash of the Titans. No, you're not feeling it, bro. No? Original was better. And there were there was other old school films. What was the other old school film? That had Medusa in it and um Jason and the Argonauts and remember all them old school films? Oh my days. You young people don't know what you're missing, man. And throughout Greek mythology, you had this concept that the gods would come among men. Where do you think that that came from? That was the the devil's distorted and perverted expectation being proclaimed. So God became a man. Became a man because he had to. God had to become a man. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. You see, Hebrews 9.27 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And only God was powerful enough and able enough to save us. And yet, only a man could die. And so God had to become a man. He had to incarnate himself in flesh in order to be able to pay the penalty of our sin. And what that does is it demonstrates to us the seriousness of our sin and the greatness of our God. That he would go to such lengths because he wants us. Because he wants us. In verse 23 there it says they shall call his name Emmanuel," which is translated God with us as prophesied 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7.14 God with us. See God wants you and God wants to have a relationship. And the question today remains I recognize most faces here I recognize that most have a profession of Christ and so for us as Christians the question is are we completely surrendered to God are we completely given over to God When we consider the way that we have approached this Christmas, would it suggest that we're completely given over to God? Have we had greater concern for what we want to give to others than what we need to give to God? As we go about our daily lives, Do we recognize the fact that we're fully surrendered? I know that I don't. I tell you straight, I know that I don't. And you see, Christ gave all of himself that he would have all of us. He laid aside his status. He laid aside his reputation, it tells us in Philippians. He, he emptied himself not of his divinity or any of his divine attributes, but of his status and his glory. And he came in humility, even to the death of the cross, for us. So, how do we respond to that when we're at work? How do we respond to that when we're making decisions in our homes? How do we respond to that when we are treating our wives or our husbands as unto the Lord? How do we respond to that when we're to honor our parents? How do we respond to that when we're using and handling our money? Are we completely and entirely God's? Or do we reserve some of ourselves for ourselves. And maybe you're here today and you've actually never surrendered to God. You've never submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that he is the only way to be saved from sin. It's clear by the fact that God had to go to the extent of becoming a man in Christ. God the Son incarnate in human form. And if you think that there is any other way for you to have a relationship with God, you are wrong. God is the superior and we're inferior. And we come to him on his terms. And so as we pray, I want you to consider that God wants you. And he went to great lengths to come and get us in giving himself for us. And in essence, this is the simple message of the gospel, the simple message of Christmas. And anything else won't do. For any of us, anything else won't do. God wants all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your mercy. Because we realize that there is no good in us. We are like the legend of Blackheath. We have a surface level of life. But are dead underneath. In and of ourselves. And yet Jesus we realize that you came to give us life. And that life. Is only found in you. And through your death. And uh, as has been said, we recognize that Christmas is just preparation for Easter. And yet, Lord, like David, we say, who are we that you would be mindful of us, that you would even consider us? What are we, Lord, but a drop in the bucket? We're but dust, Lord. Lord. From dust we were made and back to dust our bodies will return. And yet, Lord, you have made us everlasting beings. We are spirits beneath this flesh. And we thank you for giving your son. We thank you for stepping into space and time. Sending your son as our saviour, as our rescuer, as the name Jesus identifies. Saviour, rescuer, Yeshua. And Lord, I pray that you would bring us to our knees, Lord. And bring us to that place of humble and total surrender. I pray, Lord, especially for any who are here who have Not surrendered to you and submitted to your call. I pray, Lord, that you would work by your spirit in their hearts and lives, that you would bring conviction as your word says you do. Grant them the courage and the wisdom, remove the scales from their eyes, Lord, that they might see the truth. Thank you, Lord the true essence and meaning of christmas that is hope in you and lord as we leave here today we consider our response in giving you our all because you gave us your son thank you father in jesus name amen